2: Hello and welcome to another
1: instalment of History Hack. Alina, who have we got with us today? We've got with us Claire Orbin who is a PhD student at the University of Edinburgh and she's working on Holocaust perpetrators in the USA and we're going to be talking about that exact topic today. Hi Claire.
2: Hi. This could be really interesting because this is one of those icky things that you kind of don't want to think about, isn't it? Yeah, it's horrible. (laughs) Yeah. But really (laughs)
0: interesting. (laughs)
2: let's define the word perpetrator first of all because we purposely didn't say nazis did we
0: no yeah um so yeah there's kind of a gray area right in the idea of a perpetrator so there's sort of a hierarchy in terms of the way that historians and the general public view perpetration and which makes it really hard to define um but at the top of the sort of pyramid of perpetration. You have perpetrators who are um, tied directly to purposeful or systematic persecution of the victims of the Holocaust. So these are members of groups like the Nazi administration, um, the SS, major propagandists, camp guards, and paramilitary organizations like auxiliary police. Um, and then underneath that are collaborators or people who participated in the commission of the Holocaust in a less official capacity or for motivations beyond like pure anti-Semitism or fealty to the Nazis. so people who are considered collaborators might have participated in pogroms or turned hiding Jews in, um, joined anti-semitic or fascist political groups or maybe assisted Nazi goals in other ways like producing propaganda. Um, So that's like the first two sort of bits of the pyramid. And then at the bottom of this are bystanders or people whose contribution to the Holocaust was characterized by sort of this inaction and passivity rather than direct participation in violence. So this sort of bystander group includes groups like German civilians who were the recipients of the material and and territorial wealth um, confiscated. From, perse- from persecuted groups. Um, but the lines between all of these sorts of modes of perpetration are really blurry. Um, so, for, for instance, some of the perpetrators that I look at have claimed their own victimization in Nazi or Soviet um, POW camps as evidence of their innocence or evidence of their not having had a choice in whether or not to become camp guards when the issues are kind of, in fact, very separate like victimhood preceding Holocaust perpetration doesn't um, invalidate or mitigate their participation in persecution, or at least like not in the eyes of most legal systems. Um, and though I haven't included people like former Camp Capos or who are prisoners who are assigned to authoritative roles um, as perpetrators in my research, others have Um, And in fact, the U.S. government has pursued legal repercussions for at least three former capos under immigration laws that precluded Nazi collaborators from entering the U.S. So like who is or isn't a perpetrator as such can be a really sort of fraught determination. And it's something that I still really struggle with
1: um, in my own research. I was going to say capos are my uh, ultimate favorite interesting point they're so gray and so dark and the lines are so blurred that you know one thing could mean a good thing could mean a bad thing that was a good thing yeah
0: absolutely yeah it's it's really like i think that is one of the most difficult determinations here like when i look at people i look at them in terms of um the way that the u.s has chosen to prosecute um individuals and For the purposes of of immigration, which is what most of these men are sort of um, prosecuted under, like immigration fraud, Um, capos, because they did at some point participate in persecution, are considered to have committed immigration fraud. Which is a really, really, um, yeah, it's a really sort of blurry and gray area because these people are of course like victims themselves like very much of the exact same persecution
1: that they're accused of perpetrating so the word travniki men this is a, this is a word it's been thrown around the media it's been thrown around netflix for people who are interested in that yeah. can you explain to us what well who these men were and why are they so hunted post world war Two?
0: yeah um It's important to sort of like start with explaining what the Travniki camp was and where the sort of name comes from. So the Travniki camp had two main facets. Um, Firstly, it was a concentration and labor camp, largely for for Polish Jews and Soviet POWs who were captured during Operation Barbarossa, um, which is the Axis invasion of the Soviet Union. Um, And for those who aren't in the know about these things. But secondly, it was a training camp for Soviet POWs who wanted to switch sides and become SS members who could come from pretty much any Soviet POW camp, not just Travniki. Um, But Travniki was where they were trained, um, which is sort of where the name Travniki men um, comes from. So Travniki men are the men who lived worked and were trained at Travniki who would then go on to become a part of the machinery of the Holocaust. So they're a subset of Hilfswillige or Hiwis, which are people who voluntarily joined Nazi auxiliary forces. Um, And Travniki men overwhelmingly tended to be Central and Eastern European um, and were often known to be extremely violent, so much so that Holocaust victims and survivors called the entire group collectively um, Ukrainians. Like they would refer to them as like the Ukrainians, regardless of whether they were Ukrainian or not. And um, so they call them this rather than any distinct nationality because their collective violence as a group sort of rendered them indistinguishable as individuals um, with distinct nationalities. Um, so, yeah, and, and in the process of transitioning from prisoners of war to SS members, uh, Travniki men were generally like specifically selected for this very um, virulent native anti-Semitism, um, as well as anti-communism and an eagerness for violence. Um, so for the most part, we're not simply talking about men who are like forced into SS auxiliaries, um, which is the defense that these guys often use at trial. And um, for the most part, they actually sort of slipped under the international radar for quite a long time because they were able to use the excuse of, the war and post-war chaos as an excuse for their prolonged disappearance, and they usually weren't German, so their complicity in the Holocaust wasn't just like assumed. So it was like really easy for them to say that they had fled from the, the horrors of the war, um, and this sort of like relentless search for them abroad, which is the subject of these like Netflix documentaries. Um, this sort of search for them only really picked up steam a few decades after the Holocaust especially in the U S when Holocaust survivors began to sort of reach the end of their lives and really started to exert pressure on governments to bring more people to justice than just like the people who'd been on trial at Nuremberg or in the the big trials right after the end of the Holocaust.
2: This is already getting really icky, isn't it? Um, how do so many of these, like, I just did. So basically what they're doing is digging out psychopaths, aren't they?
0: Yeah. And um, kind of, it's like, it's, it's really hard because, they, you know, there, is, there are, all the, are all these blurry lines. And people mm. say, you know, you only did things during the war because you had to do them. But then with Chavniki men especially, we have evidence that these people weren't just like, they didn't just say like, hey, does anyone not want to be in a POW camp? Raise your hand. Like, yeah, there's a
2: propensity for this kind of behavior that puts them that. there, at least in some cases. But how, how do so many of them get to America?
0: Yeah. um, Well, that is what my PhD is on. Yeah. (laughs) um,
2: Can you sum up your whole PhD in like five minutes?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, So we we don't actually know how many perpetrators entered the U.S. in total. Um, But my research focuses on a group of around 150 who have faced public investigation or prosecution by the U.S. government. Um, And of that group, a not insignificant number of at least 18, I think probably a lot higher than that. um, But at least 18 can be confirmed to have at some point gone through Travniki training, um, whether just as training, like training as such, or later on working there as guards specifically over the concentration and labor part of the camp. Um, But yeah, quite a lot of them did. And it's through this, like, these very long standing lies that carried them through the whole immigration process. And then they had to continue to sort of live out in their, in their lives in America. Um, And actually some of the most famous Holocaust perpetrators found in the U S in the post-war period. So like the ones that we hear about and make the news and get Netflix things made about them Mm. um, were Travniki men. So John Demjaniuk, who's probably the most well-known, like, quote unquote Nazi next door, and um, got his start at Travniki and actually worked as a camp guard there for a very, very brief period of time before going on to do all the other things for which he went to trial for. Um, and then there's also so, like Yakiv Pali, who um, is one of, I think, the mo- well, is one of the most recent subjects. I'm not sure if he is the most recent um, person revealed to be a Nazi, I don't think so. But he's one of the most recent subjects of U.S. prosecution. Um, And he actually died, I think, almost two years ago to the day, or very close to it. So, like, this is all extremely recent that a lot Mm. of these are happening.
1: I was going to ask something else in there, um, only because I've come across quite a few Ukrainians who've actually turned around and said, oh, we're not actually Ukrainian, we're Polish.
0: Oh, yeah, of course. I mean, I think it's... it's, In... (laughs) For example, when you're talking about men like Travniki men, right, like the thing that they used to, um, that that victims and survivors called them, like I said, is Ukrainians, because there was this very pervasive stereotype, which a lot of these men actually did not um, do anything to, to dispute, but this pervasive stereotype of Ukrainians during the war as being like violently anti-Semitic. And um, so then it's sometimes um, a way that people use to to distance themselves from that and from that idea of ukrainians um during the war as being like very active participants in persecution um is by saying that you're not ukrainian you're actually polish because then you can realign yourself or then then um, people would sort of like realign themselves with with victimhood
2: rather than um perpetration It's not all about the Travniki men, though, is it? So what other kind of perpetrators do we find in the U.S. after the Second World War?
0: Um, Yeah, loads of different kind. So, yeah, it's not just Travniki men. It's just interesting because these men, you know, have a lot of ties through being at Travniki at the same time or together, but um, there are a ton, I think probably the most common type of perpetrator Um, or like mode of perpetration that I see in this is um, auxiliary policemen. Mm -hmm. Um, So especially Latvian or Lithuanian auxiliary policemen. So people who would work in these sort of paramilitary policing organizations doing the same thing as like the SS, just not working in camps, um, but participating in like, you know, rounding up Jews, um, anti-partisan operations, all of those kinds of things. So there are a lot of those, we've got some, we've, that sounds terrible. There are some, some businessmen, some big propagandists, um, some people who worked in, um, uh, like government administration with collaborationist governments. Um, I'm trying to think if there are any like really sort of like strange outliers, but for the most part, that's kind of what you see the most of because these for the most part have to be people who weren't um high up enough that the u.s would have immediately known
2: is this a much more fuzzy area than the travniki i'm guessing because in this you have a a huge pile of it was me or them yeah
0: oh yeah absolutely Mm. um but actually i think that's more common with travniki men than it is with anybody else because if you're um, an auxiliary policeman like you volunteered for that job not it's not even like you were in a. Uh, okay and like you were like sweet I'm going to go be a policeman and um commit
2: genocide basically yeah. um, I choose to look out for me instead of the people that I know are going to be my victims
0: is yeah, is. But, yeah which is not
2: a judgment at all because this is like pressures that we will never ever understand but so they volunteered whereas the Trevniki did not
0: No. So Travniki men, um, and the reason that sometimes this defense for Travniki men actually works um, compared to a lot of other perpetrators is that um, Travniki men, while, yes, there is like sort of this anti-Semitism, anti-communism, all these things that they have to, they had to sort of demonstrate in order to be chosen for Trav to be um, a a guard or to be trained. um, They were also living in Soviet prisoner of war camps, which were like truly horrific conditions like the 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 percentage or the the number of of soviet prisoners of war who died is like astronomically high and so they can very easily argue that the option if they had the option to get out of that situation that of course they would have taken it regardless of what their sort of um ideological viewpoints were or whether they were racist or anti-semitic or anything like that um But again, like not everybody had the option to get out of those camps. You kind of already had to have these things built into you in order to be even given the choice to leave the camp, to leave like the the prisoner of war camp and become a a guard. Um, So yeah, it is there's a lot of this research and work and talking about it is just constantly explaining the sort of fuzziness of all of these lines and trying to sort of walk that difficult tightrope
1: so the second world war is now over obviously it's over Um, and there are many victims left stranded basically without a home without some even without a family so some of them end up deciding to emigrate to the u.s can you tell us about the immigration process for these victims
0: yeah of course um so the whole thing is like absurdly complicated um as all immigration processes are, obviously, but in this case, you've got like literally millions of people displaced in Europe, um, s- hundreds of thousands of them, um, of which are, are looking to, to leave the continent. And um, so the whole thing is like absurdly complicated and really, really time dependent because there was a series of laws passed by the US government that dictated how many and what type of displaced persons were able to enter the US after the war. Um, And each of these laws was only in effect for a few years before being replaced by another one, because it was very much this idea that like, right, we've got um, this many people, there are still, we've got this many people into the US, there are still this many people living abroad that want to come here. How do we, you know, um, pace this to let them in? without overwhelming US sort of structures um, and giving them time to maybe try to resettle back in Europe and all these things. Um, So it's also really important to remember that post-war immigration to the US wasn't like this mass exodus where they just piled people on ships in 1945 and then were like, all right, sweet, we're done. And while it was obviously possible for people in to, to emigrate in 1945, the year that, that the immigrants that I look at most commonly entered was actually 1952. So a huge portion mm. of the immigration process was like literally just waiting.
1: Can I throw something in here? Yeah. My grandparents are in that, what you're researching right now.
0: Really? Yeah. That's so interesting. Did they immigrate to... The US or the UK? They
1: did. So they were stuck in the UK, obviously, um, and they got sponsored and emigrated. I think it was either 51 or 52 they emigrated to the US. Yeah, that's like by far the most common year in
0: 1952. Um, a lot of people started their journey in 1951, um, but then got to the US in 1952. Um, so yeah, and and the, the sort of swells in numbers very directly correlate with new legislation at each time. So there's a 1952... Um, Immigration Nationality Act and before that you've got the sorry that's the 1956 Immigration Nationality Act. We have the 1948 Displaced Persons Act which is the first big sort of wave and then an amendment to that which is the second big wave which is 1952. Um, So yeah like this will apply to all of to your to your grandparents I'm sure um, but like the majority of the people applying to emigrate were living in displaced persons or DP camps in Central Europe at the time of their application. And often in like really appalling conditions, especially in the first year or two after the end of the war. Um, and camp liberations. And what's really horrifying that a lot of people don't seem to know or understand really is that lots of the liberated concentration camps were actually just transformed into DP camps with conditions that were like obviously somewhat improved, but initially like not by that much. So the impulse to immigrate was pretty strong. Like literally people would be, their camp would be liberated and they would say, okay, great. Now you're staying here and we're just going to change the name of it to a DP camp.
1: We did a really interesting podcast with Sam Napton uh, about the British zone and displaced persons camps, and she talks about the conditions there, how they uh, they weren't pretty much much better. You could leave to a point, uh, but they were basically trying to force people like for example poles forcing poles straight back into Poland yeah. rather yeah. than allowing them out.
0: yeah, absolutely, and in some cases actually there, there's evidence that like people who were camp guards um because and this is a whole other topic, but the, the, the way that ethnicity was seen um, by Americans and like liberators coming to these camps afterwards meant that they still believed that the people who had been camp guards at concentration camps um, were still best placed to do the administration of some of these camps and to kind of function as guards of DP camps which is really horrible so a lot of times the the people who had just like literally participated in like torture and persecution and stuff were kind of able to continue not doing it to the same degree but still being in charge of camps or still be serving in like functionary functioning as sort of like guards in these camps
2: Um, so when they decide they want to go to the u.s then um, Does it differ for them? Is there sort of instances of people you know were auxiliary police that were let into the U.S.? Were they blocked if they had these kind of affiliations? Is there a different process for them? Or are they just sort of on the down low, coming in on the same process as everybody else? Um, or all of the above?
0: <laughs> kind of all of the above, honestly. Yeah. So, like, right, the actual process after you're in this DP camp is that you um, – you find a sponsor like your, like your grandparents did. Um, so it could be like a family member, a religious charity a NGO, um, who would guarantee to the U S government that you weren't going to become a public burden and that you'd be like moral basically. And you'd be positively contributing to American society. Then you had to get certi- certified as a displaced person by the international refugee organization or IRO, which was the IRO saying, yes, you are a refugee and there's nowhere we can put you other than a DP camp then you had an FBI background check and then you could apply. So this is all before you could even apply. And then the U.S. Army Counterintelligence Corps did their own investigation, which involved like interviewing three neighbors, getting a good conduct certificate, cross-checking records to make sure you hadn't been an enemy combatant. And then there's a medical examination which was actually like the undoing of quite a lot of both immigrants and perpetrators because they went through like that whole process only to be told that they couldn't go to America because they or their family member had like TB, which would trigger automatic rejection.
2: Oh, so this is like, again, becoming a burden on the state, isn't it? If you're not yeah, healthy.
0: yeah. And so then what's crazy about this whole process is that it actually didn't favor victims of the holocaust at all it was mostly concerned with this idea of like solving the post-war crisis of europe by adding to the american workforce and it really favored farm workers laborers and volksdeutsche or and ethnically german eastern europeans which meant that it was easier for perpetrators to come in so basically perpetrators um like had the same process but they had a different um, approach to navigating it. So like with the exception of perpetrators like Rainer von Braun and Hubertus Struhkhold who were brought through the Operation Paperclip program. If you, if you know what that is, which is like where the U S brought scientists to work on cold war efforts. Space um, race, everything. Yeah, all, all of
2: those. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Yeah, um, it just it, it general things that they were like, right? Well, we don't want the Soviets to get them, so let's bring these guys in. Um, but there were also perpetrators who were seen as like intelligence agency assets again for to fight Soviets. Um, who got like those people got false paperwork um, prepared for them by the CIA or whatever agency they were working for. But aside for, from that, the immigration process for perpetrators was like basically the same as it was for non-perpetrator refugees. It just meant. The the difference is just like deception. So U.S. immigration laws in the post-war period were all very explicit about the fact that people found to belong to or collaborate with organizations hostile to the U.S. during the war. um, Those people were not eligible for immigration and that applications made by people in those groups would be immediately rejected. So while non perpetrator immigrants had no real, like, motive to lie on their applications other than wanting to increase their general chances of getting into America, perpetrators really feared reprisal upon discovery. Um, Especially because, like, remember, a lot of them lived in in DP camps with their, like, literal victims. So Mm. they, they just, like, needed to get the fuck out of Europe. Yeah. So, like, they had to lie. They lied about basically everything, usually just by creating believably fake backstories. Um, But some even changed their names or, like, almost sort of, like, Germanized their names to make them sound like Volksdeutsche, to sort of throw investigators off the scent. And the most common lie, um, which I think people, like, are kind of surprised by, actually, um, is, was a fake job or, like, employment history for two reasons. Um, obviously, one being that they could use it to cover up what they'd actually been doing during the war, which was, like, committing genocide, and, and reasonably say that their former employer couldn't be contacted. But secondly, they could use these, like, fake work experiences to position themselves as um, desirable members of the U.S. workforce So like under the 1948 Displaced Persons Act, a quota of at least 30% of all successful applications needed to be from those people who had previously been employed in agriculture. Um, And there's also visa priority for a bunch of other jobs like construction and garment work. So saying you were a farmer on a farm that no longer exists, owned by people you no longer had contact details for, was sort of like the perfect Trojan horse for getting in. Mm and like a lot of them did that that I have found is like by far the most common sort of technique used by perpetrators to get into the US it's um, really
1: clever it's actually really clever however disgusting and horrible and horrific I think it is it's still clever
0: yeah I mean there also is evidence of them like having these conversations about it so like in the Damianyuk case um, there, one of the things that actually ended up being his like undoing was that in his application, he um, didn't know where to um, uh, say he'd been. Dur- he, he claims that he didn't know where to say he'd been during the war. Um, and another person in the waiting room or in the line told him to write Sobibor, which is like, oh, you know, like <clears throat> ended up being the, one of the reasons he got caught eventually. Um, but, you know, he claims that it was just, you know, they were just having conversations about where they were at what time. Um, and there's lots of evidence that, that perpetrators were, because they were all like living in like barracks and living on the same street as each other, because a lot of these camps were like ethnically divided. Um, they could just talk about what they were going to do and what they were going to say. And there was, they had the IRO and, and the, um, displaced persons agencies, sent people to camps to tell them that they were looking for farmers. So, of course, you're just going to lie and say that you're a farmer.
1: Mad. I just I can, I can wrap my head around it, but I can't at the same time.
0: Yeah, it's a lot of it is kind of can be blamed on this, like, truly, like, A, inefficient, B, bumbling, and C, just, like, un uninterested government in terms of like U.S. agencies, like they just really, to be honest, didn't really care. They, there was only so much effort that that the U.S. government and all these agencies who are sort of charged with, with removing DPs from Europe, there's only so much that they, that they were willing to do and care about. And even interviewers, a lot of times would like literally have a one- to two-day crash course on all of Eastern European geography. <laughs> <It would> be, <laughs> like, not even no, no word of a lie. They would be like, here's eight hours of training on the history of Central and Eastern Europe up to and including World War II, and now I want you to catch perpetrators if they lie about what city they were in.
2: See, this, is this kind of like... With my background in immigration enforcement, this is the same as, so I, just as a, an example, uh, Britain will never send back a single woman to the Congo, ever, because mm-hmm. of what life is like there and how society operates and you, they will not be safe. So you get a lot of women from other places saying they're from the Congo. And when you do the interviews with them, uh, it will literally be like they they know to down to like, each town and village the interviewers in order to be able to glean whether someone has actually just looked on google maps and decided they're from a village or whether they actually know the area um so like oh so you walked to school what school did you go to oh so it turns out you walk 20 miles each way that doesn't sound very realistic and stuff like that so yeah. but to expect in eight hours to have that background of knowledge to be able to fish out the people that you don't want it's like you say there has to be a limit to what america can do but then conversely operation paperclip just makes a mockery of all of it doesn't it
0: yeah absolutely i mean it's like it's like that but then beyond the eight hours it's like it's not even just the congo it's they were expected to know all of ukraine poland latvia lithuania like everywhere that people romania like all these places which again also have all different languages yeah so then they would have interpreters who were, sometimes they had interpreters who were like friends with the people that were applying.
2: Yeah. Cause that's another thing like the government will do is send someone out there to knock on doors in the place and check. Yeah. I guess Europe is such a clusterfuck at that point. It's impossible, yeah. isn't
0: it? Yeah, absolutely. And, and these addresses like don't exist anymore for a lot of these people, like, you know, especially places that the Soviets had gone through and sort of like, well, either or, had gone through and just, like, totally destroyed it in their wake, like, and, and then all of the people who had been there are now living in other DP camps or have gone to live with their family or something. There's no way to contact them. So the interview process of, like, checking with three neighbors, those almost exclusively are neighbors who met them after the war. Mm. So, if, you, if someone met you after the war and you had spent the war literally committing genocide, you're probably not going to tell them that that's what you were doing during the war. So then if someone asks you, your neighbor whether you're a nice person or not, they're going to say yes because you are now living this life where you have to actively cover up what you were actually doing during the war.
2: So if we take, then, that there's no way that the US can stop everybody coming in that should not have been allowed in, let's talk about justice. So what happens when they find that they have someone in America who shouldn't be there?
0: Um, Yeah, it's... Sometimes the answer is nothing, which is really unfortunate. And so I guess all of this depends on sort of your definition of justice. Um, but the one like, like I said, the hundred and fifty ish people that I research were all the subject of some sort of criminal investigation, um, but pretty exclusively for committing immigration fraud or like swearing a false oath rather than for the actual crimes they committed during the Holocaust, because basically the US as a as a general rule can't or doesn't prosecute criminals retroactively for crimes they committed abroad against non-Americans Um, but it can bring denaturalization suits against them for lying on the immigration applications by saying they had never done anything that would disqualify them from legally immigrating. Um, because, you you know, being a Nazi or even a propagandist or a police officer, um, that is an automatic disqualification because that means that you have at some point or another collaborated with an organization who is inimical to the United States. Um, so the general policy has been to like attempt to denaturalize known perpetrators when they're found um, and deport them to like whichever country will accept them unless they're very old um, or sick, which a lot of them have been at the time of their discovery again, because most of these things aren't happening till at least the seventies or eighties is when it starts to really pick up. So they're like very old at this point, quite a lot of them. Um, And, uh, Unfortunately, because very frequently the perpetrators the US has caught have been super old and infirm or no country is willing to accept them, quite a lot of them have just like lived in the US (laughs) (laughs) times through fields until they were like old enough or sick enough to request that they be allowed to live in the US on compassionate grounds and then they die on US soil without ever really facing any criminal consequences. Um, so for some people, I think quite understandably, that's not really justice beyond like public shame that they and their families have undergone. Um, but there are some outliers who've had like really dire consequences. Mm. So Tom Sobzokov is quite famous for this because he had his home in New Jersey bombed. Um, and then he died. Well, he didn't die at the time, but he died, um, within a month, I think, from the wounds he received in this sort of bombing. Um, or then there's Fedor Fedorenko, who's quite famous as well, and he was sent back to the Soviet Union, and he was executed there. Um, and some have been sent to countries where they, where they did face criminal trials for their participation in the Holocaust. So I don't want to make it sound like nobody ever faced any sort of justice. Yeah. But yeah, like that's the thing that can be like the hardest to really contend with. The perpetrators that we have caught were often so close to the ends of their lives that like the only real justice meted out to them
2: was basically publicly shame them.
0: Yeah, was just being like they just got basically a black mark on their social lives and were like put on a no-fly list.
2: Can I just quickly segue and ask, apart from like paperclip and where America knowingly let people in, Uh uh, who was the biggest fish that's like, it shocked the Americans to find out they were on their soil?
0: Ooh, um, if the, if the first John de trial had been true, probably John de Mm -hmm. Um, But the, the, so that's a really complicated thing. And and this is what I actually wrote my undergrad thesis on, (laughs) um, weirdly, however many years ago. Um, but John Demyanyuk, when he was first accused, people said that he was Ivan the Terrible of Treblinka and that he did all these horrible things. Who was like this, like notoriously evil Nazi basically, um, like really, really horrifically evil. Um, but he wasn't that guy as it turned out. (laughs) Um, he was still a Travniki camp, um, guard. It was at Majdanek. He was at, sorry, um, at Sobibor. Um, he he was like all he did all these really horrible things, but just not the specific things he was accused of. Yeah, and when that first came out, that was like the biggest story ever because this guy was like proper, properly like evil. When we think of like concentration camp guards, the thi- the guy that he was accused of being. There are a few other ones. Um, one of the perpetrators I find most interesting um, is Hermina brownsteiner Ryan. Mm-hmm. Um, who, and like, I, I think her story is, is, very fascinating actually, but she was found living in Queens, New York. Um, and she was the person that she was accused of being unlike like um, which is a woman known as the mayor of Majdanek who would, um, this it's really horrible. She would like literally like stomp people to death and like, um, set dogs on, children and stuff really horrible really evil stuff um and she was found just like living the life of a happy housewife in queens with her jewish husband no way Uh, yeah yeah, who, who was um she met him she actually went to 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 um went to jail after the war for i think two or three years um and then um met an American GI living in, I think Switzerland and they got married. She never said a word of it to him, moved to the U S. Cause like in her mind, well, actually first they moved to Canada, they moved to Nova Scotia and then they moved to Queens. Um, but they, yeah, she, in her mind she had like done her duty by going to, to prison for two years. And that was her, that was her done. And, um, Yeah, and so she she immigrated via, like, a a much more sort of roundabout way rather than the traditional, like, DP Act immigration. So, because she immigrated with a marriage visa. Um, Oh, my God. But, yeah, that one really, like, people... How did her husband feel? You know what is wild is her husband actually ended up defending her for for a lot of it and saying that she couldn't have been this person when, like, she had already been in prison for being this person. and. And yeah, it's, it's really interesting. There's, um, yeah, this, this idea of like her as like this private citizen as like a housewife. Therefore, she could not, she could not have been this evil person. And it's just like those two things are totally separate from one another. Um, yeah, it's, it's wild. I think her marriage is a particularly interesting thing because even so, her name before marriage is Hermina Brownsteiner um, and marries him, changes it to Hermina Brownsteiner Ryan. Um, but in every single news article about her, most of which are coming out in the New York Times, um, she's called just Mrs. Ryan. Like, she doesn't even have her own name. She just now, like, she even gets the, 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 um, credibility or like the, that's a
2: pretty savvy PR move yeah absolutely um and
0: but it's also like totally the the newspapers are totally complicit in this narrative where like she couldn't have been a holocaust perpetrator because her jewish husband was an american gi and she loves him so much that they're still married and they're still happy and all these things but it's like but we know like there, there was no question as to whether this thing that she was accused of was true because she had literally already gone to jail for it and was willing to admit that.
1: That so- happened a lot though, didn't it, at the time? Because quite a few of perpetrators, they ended up going to prison for a year or two or three. Or, or for example, they went to prison on the Soviet side. They get released. They come to Germany or wherever they go. And they're like, oh yeah, great. You know, I'm free, fantastic. And then they go through another court trial and then they're imprisoned again yeah I mean what's for the u s most of these people actually weren't i think um
0: uh hermina and Ryan is one of the few people who um actually had gone to prison and come to the u s afterwards and that's just because she came on on that marriage visa for most people they they wouldn't be able to immigrate with that on their record at all um to the u s but it it was more it was easier for example to go to the u k afterwards because of um some of the like um immigration easing. For specific nationalities like Latvians and Lithuanians, it was easier for Balts to move to the to the UK, and um, so they could kind of like circumvent this like um, exposing their 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 prison like their past and and their, their former sentencing and stuff like that. So it's really like, yeah, it's it's a really wild thing. And and then these people afterwards are like, well, I did two years. So I have experienced justice already. And then you have to kind of say, well, is, do we count that as justice? If, for example, in the case of of Brownshine and Ryan, like you literally murdered women and children yourself as an individual is, is two years. Like the, the average sentence for all the guards is that, do you think that's a reasonable amount of justice? You know? So I don't
2: know, it's really hard. (laughs) Everything we're talking about is how publicly it looked like they dealt with these people. Yeah. That's different to private, isn't it?
0: Yeah. Um, So, like, I, I talk quite a lot about this, actually. When I talk about, like, public versus private perceptions of perpetrators and perpetration as an action, like... We're talking largely about the discrepancy between the ways that the media and general public treat the idea of a perpetrator in their midst versus the way that they treat and conceive of the actual perpetrator as a a sort of private individual and like their private individual relationships with them. So on a public or more general level, we as a society sort of like abhor the concept of a Holocaust perpetrator living among us, right? Like these people are meant to be the worst humanity has to offer. And if we find them, we bring a case against them and we throw them out and we cast them out of our communities because they're a threat to our collective morality um, in theory. But that's not actually what happens or what has happened for the most part. They sort of get like amalgamated into this like weird evil void and were shocked when presented with the reality of their presence in what are meant to be perfectly normal neighborhoods, untouched by, like, the horrors of the Holocaust. Um, So then these strange ideas of who can or can't be a Holocaust perpetrator and what they're meant to look like or act like or what their job is or, like, how they treat their pets are, like, compared to what we think a Holocaust perpetrator is. And... And in many cases, people who know these accused perpetrators on an individual level are, like, simultaneously horrified by the accusation and in total disbelief of it because their perception of the way this perpetrator behaves in private is incongruent um, with what we think perpetrators sort of must be like. So there's this phenomenon, sort of like actually what we see with, like, uh, serial killers and people who kidnap people and keep them in their basements where their neighbors and coworkers and church members offer like the most inane defenses of them, mostly for the sake of preserving their own image because they've been now associated with someone who could do something like that. So for instance, the perpetrator um, Brownshanna Ryan, like I was talking about um, was like, relentlessly defended by her friends and her neighbors who said, you know, like she couldn't have murdered and tortured women and children because she was nice to my kids and she kept her house very tidy.
2: Yeah. That's <laughs> like, logic for you.
0: Yeah. Like literally would say like, well, she always like kept her lawn mode. So clearly she could not have been a concentration camp guard. Like as if those have anything to do with, with another, um, another perpetrator's son like another perpetrator um his son defended him with like what is now especially recently like an even worse defense by saying literally like this is the headline he couldn't have been a nazi he was a republican
2: oh God.
0: <laughs> right and that was like a defense at the time Um, Like, or they'll just like, you know, offer defenses that really don't hold any water when you compare, when they're compared to like historical facts about how and why these people participated in the Holocaust. Like, in reality, these weren't the sort of like Arendtian banal evil sort of pencil pushing bureaucrats with ambition rather than violence in mind, which I suppose some people could say like, if, if that had been the case, they would be able to say that them as sort of private individuals isn't different than their actions during the war like for the most part these are people who on an individual level physically committed atrocity and then washed their hands of it hopped on a boat or a plane and just got to hit a reset button on their lives as though like none of it had ever happened so like that's pretty hard to wrap your head around if you're the average american
1: I love these arguments because, for example, these SS men who are working in these concentration camps, they were brutal, horrible, um, sadistic at, at what they would call work. Yeah. And they'd go home and they had their families, you know, their kids and they were the loving fathers, doting husbands. So th- there is no argument. I'm sorry. They were a sadistic bastard putting back in prison.
0: Yeah, I mean, even those people would, like, those who weren't married, because a lot of them weren't married or whatever, they, like, you know, then the, hitting this reset button would just happen as soon as they left the camp, because then they would just go and get married, find someone in a DP camp to have a family with, and then just move abroad, pretend it never happened, and whatever, and then just live their whole lives as though that had never, ever happened. Um, but, like, the, <laughs> yeah, the 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 it is crazy how many of these people claim – honestly the majority of them when they are um accused of being a guard and there's you know this mountain of evidence that they were in fact a guard in this place um they sort of um finally will admit to having been there but then say like oh i just i was just a perimeter guard oh i just walked around the outside as my job all day like no the fuck you didn't i'm sorry yeah.
1: like, i was an accountant that was probably what was that what, not long ago a couple of years yeah. ago I, I was just the auschwitz accountant
0: yeah absolutely that's exactly the kind of defense how many perimeter guards does each camp need when it's surrounded <laughs> like when you have people in guard towers watching over them it's surrounded by these fences like nobody there there were not that many perimeter guards And it's amazing that all of them managed to come to America specifically if that's the case. Like, yeah, it's, yeah. The whole thing is just, it happens in degrees, right? Like first they say, I wasn't there. I don't know what you're talking about. I would never do that. And then they say, all right, maybe I was kind of near there, but again, never heard of that concentration camp in my life. And then it's like, well, I suppose I was aware of the concentration camp. And then it's like, well, I suppose I did work there. Like it just happens in these like tiny degrees where they admit to something, and then finally they're like, that. Finally, they just reach the wall of saying, "Yes, I did work there. Yes, all this thing, all this happened. However, I was not bad. I was just a perimeter guard, and that's as far as I'm willing to go." Even when we have overwhelming evidence that people did more than that, and also, doesn't matter if you're a perimeter guard, you were still a guard at a concentration camp, so you are still.
2: St- you still shot anyone that tried to cross the line. Yeah, and you're still guilty of
0: the, of the crimes that everyone else who worked there were, because you were enabling those crimes, if that's the case. It doesn't matter. Like, you're still part of this machinery. So,
2: yeah. Can I ask one last question? This has been brilliant, so interesting. Uh, yeah, does the Soviet relationship with America during the Cold War affect any of what we've been discussing?
0: Yes, massively. I think it's the thing that's happening in the background in all of this um that like it's kind of like the thing that is secretly pulling some of the strings without either side even really knowing about it because it's affecting all of this so firstly um u.s immigration laws in the post-war period were like way more concerned with saving eastern europeans from the specter of communism than they were with keeping Nazis out or with helping Jews to find refuge from the trauma of the Holocaust. Um, A justification that's like pretty commonly used for why people needed to come to America and avoid the Soviet repatriation that the US and the Soviet Union had agreed upon at Yalta was because they feared reprisal for their anti-Soviet viewpoints. And the US totally bought that defense hook, line and sinker. So, you know, if you were a, a perpetrator who had been a Soviet prisoner of war, for example, um, and said, well, yes, I spent my time in a in POW camp, um, but actually I'm, I have anti-Soviet viewpoints. Um, you could then claim that as a defense by saying um, the Soviets will punish me for being a prisoner of war because they see that as um, turning against or uh, being treacherous to the Soviet cause So just me having been a POW, you know, in parentheses, actually, I was at Travniki killing people. Um, But me just being a a prisoner of war is enough to say that I shouldn't go back to the Soviet Union because they'll hurt me if I go there. Um, So like, yeah, then the US just like absolutely ate that up because that meant that they could get some anti-communists away from the Soviet Union and into the US and potentially even use them as intelligence assets. Um and in another way, like quite a large proportion of perpetrator immigration would have been avoided had the US-Soviet relationship not been such like a tense one. The the documents that were eventually used to successfully prosecute perpetrators um, were very frequently not accessible to American prosecutors until after the fall of the Soviet Union, because Americans had different documents from the ones held by the Soviets. so the the documents that the U.S. was using to to check for perpetrators, for the most part, um, were found in the BDC or the Berlin Document Center. Um, that only kept Nazi and, and, and German documents. Um, so because the majority of the perpetrators that I researched were originally from Soviet-controlled areas rather than Germany... Um, they weren't subjected to the same level of record-keeping. Of course, there were records, but they weren't subjected to the same level of record-keeping as more official members of the Nazi regime. So, like, at the same time, the records that did exist of their participation in the Holocaust were, like, often held behind the Iron Curtain after the war, and the U.S. was, like, usually entirely unaware of important groups of persecutors. So, for example... Um, Travniki didn't even show up on the U.S.'s list of organizations inimical to the United States because they only knew of it as a concentration camp. Um, so they didn't see any time spent there as anything other than you being a prisoner of war because they didn't realize that people were being trained there. Um, and that list of organizations was the list that they used to disqualify immigration applicants who might have collaborated with the Nazis. So this is why the the fraudulent immigration success rate for former Travniki men was apparently so high, and um, because the U.S. basically didn't even know that they should be looking for them, and all of that is down to U.S.-Soviet relations and being unwilling to even work together on this. So yeah,
2: <laughs> it's a pretty big thing. Yuck! It's just it's just it's horrible, isn't it? It just the hypocrisy on display is just mind blowing.
0: Yeah, I mean, it didn't even get popular to to prosecute or even find perpetrators in the U.S. until you know the '70s, the late '60s, early '70s, just because people were were survivors were starting to die and and put so much pressure on the government by saying like you can't keep you can't keep ignoring this. We know that they're here, so can you please do something about it,
1: Claire? That was absolutely brilliant, and um. I've actually learned quite a few things there. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me.
2: Oh, it just—it It is fascinating, but it's just, it gets more, the more you scratch it, the more icky it gets.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's a really, really horrible thing to study. And I know I said that at the beginning, but like, yeah, because you have to A, start to talk about things like corruption and, you know, american the us government but then you also have to talk about holocaust perpetration become very knowledgeable about that
2: Mm. and
0: yeah and then the justice system afterwards so altogether none of it is a particularly um it's an interesting thing to study obviously i i'm studying it because i find it very interesting and very sort of relevant but it's not like an enjoyable
2: thing someone has to do it it's true absolutely is there a book coming when the phd is done I certainly hope so. That would be great. Um, I think
0: first thing is to get to the, the thesis finish line because um, I'm a third year. So I've got about another, well, with the pandemic, maybe another year and a half, <laughs> mm-hmm. maybe two. Who knows? Um, but a little while to go on it. Um, and yeah, I would lo- the, the goal is to turn this into a book because there have been a lot of books about perpetration and a lot of books about Nazis in America, but not a lot of books about how they got there in the first place.
2: And I think that's the thing that really needs some examination. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Join us tomorrow when Howard Williams will be with us to talk all about the archaeology of death. Don't miss that. It's really interesting. Don't forget that we do exist on Patreon. There's going to be incentives for joining on either of those platforms. We're revamping ourselves on both of them. So don't forget to go in. You can do as little as a dollar a month and it all goes towards keeping up History Hack as regular as we've been able to bring it to you this year. We are now on YouTube. We are posting all of our new episodes on there and we have our own channel and we are gradually posting all of the back episodes because we have been made aware of the fact that you can only find the last 100 on some platforms. So you can go and listen to your hearts content and laugh at the cartoons and have a great time. So do go over there and subscribe.
0: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen